Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Nathan Jones, and uh, I will be introducing and moderating our panel here on uh, fentanyl and third generation gangs in Latin America. We have an all star panel. I feel like I need Chicago Bulls uh, hype music, you know, as, as we bring out the starting lineup here. Um, we have an all star lineup here, uh, and I'm going to go through and give a brief introduction. Uh, before we get into it. Um, so beginning, we have our top ranking uh, academic here. We've got full professor Dr. Guadalupe Correa Cabrera of George Mason University. She has an amazing book, Setas Inc., uh, applying corporate models uh, to Mexican organized crime uh, groups. I think it's a, it's a groundbreaking book in terms of applying corporate models. And it's available on Amazon right now. And in true organized crime fashion, I have demanded 10% of all pro proceeds. No, just kidding. Um, so uh, we've got, a, we've got an a, a amazing uh, leading scholar. And then next, we've got John P. Sullivan, who is our um, top practical, I call him a pracademic, a practical academic. He has an extensive law enforcement uh, career. Uh, so he's actually applied and done real investigations related to organized crime. And he is incredibly well published as a scholar with his PhD from Spain's Open University uh, of Catalonia, where he studied under Manuel, the Manuel Castell. So, I mean, we have a, a, an, a, an amazing scholar practitioner here. Um, and uh, myself, Dr. Nathan Jones, I'm an associate professor at Sam Houston State University in security studies. Um, I'm also a Small Wars Journal uh, senior fellow, um, and John P. Sullivan is a driving force uh, on that, uh, and he he is the driving force on that. He's a senior fellow there as well, and I'm also a non-resident scholar with Rice University's Baker Institute. Um, and then we've got uh, Dan Weiss Argamito, who is um an amazing brand new scholar he just finished his uh phd so he is dr dan weiss argamito congratulations to him um and he's also he just finished his phd at uc irvine looking at uh the mexican military uh and also um issues related to uh gender related violence uh, and things along those lines He's from UC Irvine, brand new PhD, and he is currently on the job market right now. So if any uh, scholars out there uh, who are watching right now, uh, if your department is going through a higher, we vouch for him like it's the mafia. Um, he's a great guy. He's a wonderful person. Um, and just tell us where we need to uh, send the bribes. Just kidding. Uh, we're just trying to work in as many organized crime jokes here as we can here in, the, in this intro uh, to keep it entertaining. Um, but seriously, Dan is uh, amazing. He's an amazing young scholar. Uh, he's been writing for us uh, pretty heavily with the Small Wars Journal as well, where he is also uh, affiliated. And Dr. Guadalupe Correa Cabrera is also affiliated. She's also a fellow with the Small Wars Journal El Centro, which is the Latin America division. I'd like to say a brief word because that's how we on this panel, we all know each other. That's one of our common uh, links here is the Small Wars Journal. The Small Wars Journal was a website that got going in the aftermath of the U.S. invasion in Iraq. And it became very clear to uh, many, uh, for example, former Marines, uh, that there wasn't enough counterinsurgency literature, that there that this was a blind spot. And so they started the Small Wars Journal website and it became very influential. It's heavily read inside the military. It's heavily read inside the Pentagon. But it's 
open access. So it's heavily read by everybody who's interested in security issues related to small wars, insurgency, counterinsurgency. And John P. Sullivan and Robert Bunker uh, made an amazing decision uh, in the late uh, 2000s, early uh, 2010s there to start the Small Wars Journal El Centro division of the website, which was uh, focused on Latin America and organized crime. And it has uh, been a true boon to the literature. Um, the open access nature of it. It is truly a labor of love. Uh, he's put in a tremendous amount of work on it. Um, since I've been a senior fellow, I've put in a tremendous amount of work on it. And I'd like to put that plug out there. We are now fully peer reviewed on the El Centro side. So if you submit directly to me or John, um, we will put you through a full peer review. Uh, we're looking for articles of about 3,500 words in length, and um, we'll put you through a, a fairly rapid but full and comprehensive peer review um, for your, your research, uh, as long as it's related to Latin America, organized crime, uh, and, and major security issues. Um, so now that I've uh, introduced and encouraged uh, uh, submissions, um, I want to do a quick uh, intro of this topic. And I'm going to give a brief, uh, and at, at some point, I'm actually going to pitch to John very quickly. But let me give you a brief intro here. Um, so we're here discussing fentanyl and third generation gangs in Latin America. And fentanyl is a new phase of the opi opioid crisis in America, um, but it is obviously a global problem with global supply chains that we need to flesh out a little bit here. Um, so first, in the United States, we had doctors overprescribing opiates uh, in the 1990s, and this became a burgeoning problem throughout the 2000s. People like Sam Quinones have written amazing books like Dreamland, really documenting the scourge of the opiate crisis here in the United States. Um, and we have transitioned from heroin and plant-based drugs increasingly to synthetic drugs. We saw that transition with methamphetamines um, and pressure on uh, Sudafed markets here in the United States, forcing, uh, making it more difficult to produce domestically, and that being pushed down into Mexico, where large Mexican organized crime groups were actually able to produce it better and cheaper. Now we're seeing a move with opiates from plant-based opiates uh, cultivated either in Colombia or in Mexico or, or throughout Latin America, more towards synthetic opiates, specifically fentanyl. That is, that is the big one. But other opiate derivatives such as carfentanil uh, and, and many others. And these are oftentimes brought in via uh, from with via precursors from India and China, they come in into Mexico. The precursors are put together in labs at that point, uh, and then uh, it is trafficked into the United States. It's highly profitable. It's incredibly cheap to make. Um, that is not the only vector. And uh, shortly, I'm going to pivot to John, and he's going to describe the other vectors of how how this enters the United. United States. But this has become a bigger issue now, in part because we are now up to 110,000 overdose deaths in the United States. Uh, and 70 to 80,000 of those are now attributed specifically to fentanyl. And I was doing some recent research on cocaine, and you look at the cocaine overdose numbers, and they're fairly low, and they're very steady. And then you see another number when you look at the CDC data and it's cocaine mixed and cut with fentanyl, with fentanyl at the same time. And you see those numbers doubling in recent years. Um, 
so we've seen this become a much bigger issue because of the sheer public health crisis that it has led to. That has also led to political responses. And some of these political responses uh, can be described as reactionary. Um, there are Republican congressmen now calling for the use of the military in Mexico to target fentanyl labs. Um, and the, they're, they're describing various different things. They're talking about going and doing strategic strikes, uh, surgical strikes on labs. But it seems unrealistic given how decentralized many of these labs are in Mexico. It's also a major sovereignty issue for Mexico. And anyone who understands a modicum of U.S.-Mexico history understands that this idea of uh, using U.S. military forces in Mexico is not going to go well on the Mexican side of the border in terms of Mexican politics, uh, the memory of the Pershing raid, the memory of the Mexican-American war, uh, and all of the various sovereignty issues that Mexico has dealt with vis-a-vis uh, -vis the United States. That has led to a very strong backlash against that. And so the question becomes, if there were to be this broader debate about the use of uh, U.S. military in Mexico related to this fentanyl issue, what would we lose in terms of cooperation and bilateral cooperation? And I think that that's going to be a theme that we're going to discuss uh, throughout. At this point, I'd like to do a quick screen share here and um, put up some slides and uh, pitch it to John to give us a working definition of third generation gang literature. This has been around for going on a little over 30 years now. It has become an ingrained part of the literature. Um, and since we're talking about it, it's good that we start with a working definition on, on it. John, why don't you start us off while I start uh, pulling this up here? Sure. Um, bottom line up front, I want to point out that third generation gangs are mostly involved in street level uh, micro-trafficking or narco um, and they're not currently the major players in the fentanyl trade, but they may well have a future in in, in that realm. Um, to kind of point things off, I view this entire phenomena through several lenses. Uh, one is viewing it as criminal armed groups, so not just organized crime, but I'm interested in criminal armed groups that challenge the sovereignty of the state. I'm interested in uh, hybrid conflict where nation states use organized crime as a strategic lever for influencing other nations. And I look at it uh, as a traditional organized crime uh, network. So we're looking at strategic crime, transnational organized crime, and gangs, transnational gangs. Um, resource extraction is part of the piece. Criminal insurgencies are not a criminal enterprise taking over the legitimate portion of the state. They're drivers of state transition, as Charles Tilley would talk about it. So that's often misunderstood. Um, there's a range of criminal networks that participate in this realm, um, pirates, militias, cartels, mafias, and gangs. And there are some places which you could call feral or narco cities or criminal enclaves. And there's some discussion about a black force. You know, in the military, you talk about the red force, your adversary, the blue force yourself, and the black force kind of criminal enterprises. So we're seeing a a mix of crime and war. Now, through the third generation model, back in 90, 1997, I put together a future-looking model based upon the work of uh, Malcolm Klein at the University of Southern California. He was a, a eminent gang scholar of the time, and he did define there were two generations of gangs, uh, turf gangs that were engaged in turf protection, uh, drawing back to the classic work 
in, in Chicago, um, and then market gangs, which were driven by the Crips and Bloods and their global expansion in the United States. And then I postulated that there was perhaps a third generation that would be a mercenary gang whose goals could be power or financial acquisition. And I first saw that potential in Chicago with the El Rukins, who were a variation of the Blackstone Rangers, were arrested by the FBI for attempting to purchase Law's rockets for Muammar Gaddafi. So at, initially, that was a project, projection. The three metrics I came up with were politicization from limited, very neighborhood-based, through global, So, uh, or I could mix them up, limited politicization, uh, very small local politics through evolved global, internationalization from local, one housing project, one neighborhood, through the nation, through, through an entire nation, um, or parts of the nation through a global network, and then sophistication being less sophisticated to more sophisticated. Essentially, what we're talking about is illicit networks. And as the research evolves, we start to see prison street gang nexuses, like where the gang operates from prison, but projects its power into the street. And I've largely looked at this phenomenon in, in Mexico and Brazil, but increasingly in places like South Africa, um, Ecuador, uh, Central America. Um, so that's the basic model. Started out as a projection, over time it started to mature. Um, so what we're talking about are illicit flows. Adapt, we're talking about adaptive, illicit networks, gangs, cartels, mafias, and they're both the flows of, you know, we used to call these organizations drug trafficking organizations. They're really currently poly-crime organizations that are engaged in lots of different criminal enterprises, ranging from extortion through, through through the drug trade, through the arms trade, through human trafficking, sex trafficking, and a range of financial crimes. So we talk about financial flows, operational ties, and some specialized nodes. And I would note that there are some specialized purveyors of services to the other criminal enterprises, and they have work very active in the money laundering sector and in parts of the arms trade. For example, there's a specialty cartel in Spain that develops narco subs or low profile uh, semi-submersible vehicles for transporting narcotics from North Africa into Europe. And they work for a lot of different activities. Now, the circuits that I'm looking at here um, really talk about function and location. And I would call your attention to Manuel Castell's work on the space of places and flows. Here we're looking at the flows. So when we talk about fentanyl, we talk about fentanyl coming from China with a smaller niche coming from the Hong Kong Special Autonomous Region. And it flows in the US discourse. We, we emphasize, I think, perhaps more than we need to, the flow of finished product and precursors to Mexico. Now, some of those products stay in Mexico. There's some street level sales there. And then the finished product flows into the United States. And the United States has identified the major problem there being China to Mexico to the United States. Obviously, precursors flow both ways. Um, the second route, the one that we don't talk about a lot in the United States, but my friends in um, Mexico City remind me uh, regularly, is the flow of finished product and precursors directly to the United States and then the street sales in the United States. Um, and that's a big piece. We, we don't emphasize that in our political dialogue, but the bulk of that comes into California. Obviously, we're on the Pacific Rim. Um, just an interesting aside from the Mexico piece, 75% of the fentanyl trade from Mexico comes through Baja California, from you know Tijuana, uh, Tecate, um, up into San Diego. But it doesn't stay in California. It moves throughout the rest of the United States. And there are other organized crime groups, gangs, uh, motorcycle gangs, uh, Crips and Bloods, and 
Sereños and others that move it throughout the United States. The, the third route is finished product and precursors from China to Canada, primarily to Vancouver. Some stays in Canada, and then a, another component of finished product moves back into the United States. Uh, the last piece, the Chinese, as they get deeper involved in these organizations, and these are Chinese networks of various types, um, many of them are specialty organizations that just move precursors. Others are tied to the centuries-old triads and tongs. Um, the Hong Kong police often talk about triad activity into Canada and Vancouver, and there's a well-established route there. But they had a back-channel route where they started moving product in, and precursors into India. And the emerging flow is as we crack down on Chinese and trade that um, we start to see finished product moving from India into Mexico. So that, that's the, the basic basic circuit arrangement. Um, before I pass it back to you, I have a bunch of discussion about current events, but I think I should do that last after we get uh, our, get um, Guadalupe and Dan on to give them some time. I would just say that China is a wild card. Keep that in mind. There's a lot to look. And I put it back to you and I'll come back later. Okay. Um, so at this point, I would like to pitch it to uh, Dr. Cabrera, uh, Guadalupe, um, and we'd like to hear from you for five minutes on your thoughts on fentanyl and third generation gangs. Absolutely. And I am very glad that you organized this. Thank you for, um, for the organization of this event. Um, the global initiative and, and this excellent panel that you all put together. So thank you, Nate, for this. Thank you, John, for setting up, up the, um, the framework to understand this complex phenomenon. I am, you and Nate may maybe know much better what I'm going to be writing about and what research is about. And I'm talking about a new generation of um, forms of organized crime, I would say, that will probably go beyond the third generation, what you so call, or what you call gangs, the third generation gangs, the first generation, the oriented, as you, as you mentioned, as you well explained, the second generation driven by drugs and mercenary oriented, and the third generation, small led by political orientations and increased sophistication and transnationalization. I am alleging that there is a new generation of cartels that has to do with the new framework incorporated by why we know as the Cartel Jalisco Nueva Generación. I know that Nate and I have been um, talking about that. I have read Nate's work, but I think that we need to incorporate further elements. Yes, you, Nate, and others have talked about illicit networks, networks not necessarily gangs, or cartels or criminal corporations as I did in the book Los Etas Incorporated. So I'm trying to explain the new configuration of organized crimes without the utilization of the world cartels or the, without the utilization of the world gangs. We're talking about sophisticated networks of actors or systems of different, I would say, networks. When we talk about systems, it's even more complex. It's not just transnational, but it's more complex. Complex adaptive systems in the um, the jargon, or the military jargon, I would say, that has to do with counterinsurgency, uh, misinformation, you know, the four generation things that focus on uh, what the media is about, but it's not just that. 
It's just the configuration of these systems uh, that are of complex adaptive mechanisms, adapt to the to the new um, circumstances. And when we talk about the Cartel Jalisco Nueva Generación, we're really not talking about an organization that it's just like horizontal, like Losetas, that that we kind of like, I tried to explain to some extent, but we were, you know, we saw some leadership, we saw some, you know, organization horizontally, but now we're not necessarily talking about a corporation or an homogeneous model of business. We're talking about systems that work in different directions and adapt to the new realities. And when a group call themselves Carta Jalisco Nueva Generación. We don't have to talk about drugs. We really don't have to talk about drugs. The Carta Jalisco Nueva Generación is present, for example, in the border of, of Guatemala and the Tabasco, for example. And these groups are part of kidnapping rings that are saying, I'm Carta Jalisco Nueva Generación. So with that fear, you generate fear, generate misinformation, special operations, and all this in the military jargon can be explained. That's what I'm talking about, the new generation cartels that has to do with the militarization strategy. And that generates um, phenomena that can just be explained by military strategy and military um, operations, which is important and which is important to, you know, to erase that vision of the narcos and the vision of the fentanyl driven by the narcos. And that's why the proposal by um, the main leadership in the Republican Party, not just Donald Trump, I'm talking about the candidates for the presidency, all of them that are just like in, in agreement with regards to what they need to say about the fentanyl crisis and how to solve it, declaring a war on cartels or declaring the cartels just before the war on cartels, which is like a very, this idea that's based on an inaccurate conception of the criminal right of the criminal world in Mexico, south of the border, because for the United States, drugs, drug traffic and drug consumption is a national security issue. And when we are thinking about the, the, the security uh, panorama in Mexico, we're see, seeing a very different thing. Not necessarily all the groups that we're talking about are cartels tells in the sense of drug cartels for the United States, where they don't even know how to conceptualize what we are going, uh, I mean, what the transformation is about, and they are trying to declare a war on what? A war on networks that are formed by families, that are formed by actors that dedicate themselves to illicit, to an illicit activities. Yes, we need to understand this better. And we have books that have talked about the, fent the, the, the market of fentanyl, and um, as, as, as a way, I mean, as systems. And so that we have to understand that if you declare a war on cartels, you're gonna be declaring a war on civilians. You will declare a war on Mexico and Mexican people. And this is very concerning and very complicated. 2024 is gonna be about that. It's gonna be centering on the border again and the connection of border issues to matters of undocumented migration, the fentanyl crisis, and now, with regards to terrorism. We're starting to hear about how the so-called cartels are connected with Hamas, are connected to everything that the United States considers an enemy. So we have to be very rigorous, very concrete. First of all, we're not talking about cartels because the drug trafficking organizations are not cartels. They did not form oligopolies that act like monopolies because they fight for the 
for the control of a territory. So we really have to be very rigorous. We really have to reframe our conversation, our concepts. And now it's very difficult not to talk about cartels because everybody uses that term that is completely um, misused to express a very different reality. So we have to think about that. And now in my perception, we have a new generation of gangs. We have a new generation of criminal organizations. We have to, we have to, we have to probably work on a new framework to understand what we are living together now because of the militarization of crime and because of the military responses to crime too that generates complex adaptive systems. Thank you very much. That, that was fantastic. You raised a lot of, of excellent issues there. Um, and I am excited to see, actually, I'm going to pivot now uh, to Dan. I'm excited to see what Dan has to say about uh, third generation gangs and uh, the fentanyl crisis. For sure. So I'm going to take it in a little different route. I want to um, kind of showcase some of these complex networks and also talk about fentanyl in ways that we haven't really uh, discussed. Now, of course, I don't want to take anything away from the opioid crisis or the toll it's taken on human beings. I want to reference the environmental costs only to show what the repercussions of these synthetic drugs are doing in Mexico. So as many of you know, the production of these synthetic drugs, so be it fentanyl, methamphetamines, MDMA, or amphetamines, they require electricity and water sources. And production is incredibly costly to the environment. For every kilo produced of drugs, five kilos of chemical waste is produced. And these chemicals include things like solvents, acid, chemical binders. And just for example, in the municipality of Tamazula, in the state of Jalisco, General Javier Jimenez Mendoza and Roman Galán Treviño, who's a representative of the Semarnat, that's the Secretary of the Environment and Natural Resources in Mexico, found several drug labs that had contaminated not only the earth, but rivers, streams, and even water tables. And they noted that they detected specifically sodium hydroxide, ammonium hydroxide, chloric acid, sulfuric acid, and ammonium sulfate. Now, I'm not a chemist, so I had to look up what the actual effects of these are on the ground. And what it does is that essentially, the second that it touches waterways, it causes the death of fish and other species. And then when it hits the ground, these chemicals also accelerate the erosion of the land by destroying essential nutrients that impede the proper filtration and storage of water. So the production of these synthetic drugs has essentially exploded across Mexico. And it's now also polluting one of the most vital biospheres in the world, which is the Sea of Cortes or the Mar de Cortes. This area is responsible for 11% of Mexico's GDP. And researchers now report that at least 1,600 tons of chemical pollutants are dumped because of the production of these synthetic drugs into the in this area. In Sinaloa, the pollution related to this production of synthetic drugs has led to the displacement of animals like the jaguar. And in the San Lorenzo Valley, several rivers and lagoons have completely dried up. And this is because of the pH levels caused by chemical pollution. Some environmental activists even reported that colors of rivers in locations close to these illicit drug labs have changed and that there has been a dramatic increase in dead fishes in these rivers. So these organizations have involved themselves in illicit fishing in the Mar de Cortes since 2013. And that's because they wanted to supply the Asian market with several endangered species. 
including that totoaba fish and cannonball jellyfish. And I know you must be thinking, why is this man speaking about fish right now? I promise it'll make sense in a second. So the Mar de Cortes, apart from the GDP, is also incredibly important for fishing. You have to realize that it's responsible for at least half, if not more, of the commercial fishing for all of Mexico. And it's also a vital ecosystem that's home to thousands of species of fish, of which 10% is only found in this sea. Now, several organizations have involved themselves in the illegal traffic of several species, but the totoaba fish in particular is very valued. You see, a kilo of this fish can reach anywhere between $20,000 to $100,000 in the Chinese black market. And what we've found is that organizations that are now imposing themselves onto the fishermen in, the, in this area are exchanging this fish for chemicals used in the production of synthetic drugs, such as fentanyl and methamphetamines. Now, I can go on and on about the repercussions. Obviously, one of the worst that's most popular that's being sort of um, heard around the world is of the vaquita marina. If uh, you don't know what the vaquita marina is, it's the world's smallest porpoise. And because fishermen use special gillnets to capture this totoaba fish, and the vaquita marina is a similar size, they get caught up and die. Because of these illegal extractions, the population of this vaquita uh, marina has decreased from 600 in 1997 to 30 in 2016. And the problem goes beyond just illegal species. The criminal organizations also go directly to fish producers, force them to forge documents so that they say that, for example, shrimp are being caught and extracted in the legal season when they're not. And we also see that there's an overfishing in the entire peninsula because of these organizations. When talking about illegal logging, it is now calculated that 30% of the logging industry in Mexico is being taken over by organized crime. Just in 2020, illegal logging in Mexico managed to be responsible for the loss of around 127,000 hectares of forest. Just, for, just so we understand the magnitude of that, that's greater than the total deforestation recorded between 2010 and 2015. So clearly these extractive forces are becoming very detrimental in Mexico. These organizations are becoming more sophisticated and becoming a problem in different sectors. And it requires a lot of precise research to be able to understand these links and understand also the consequences of the production of fentanyl. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Thank you, Dan. Um, again, you brought up uh, many of the issues that Guadalupe, many of the themes that Guadalupe also touched upon, uh, primarily that this issue of fentanyl and third generation gangs touches upon many other sectors of the economy and that there's a widespread diversification of these activities. Uh, and it touches upon other issue areas. Guadalupe mentioned uh, terrorism, uh, migration, and how these issues were being brought in rightly or wrongly onto this. Uh, you've brought up environmental uh, and the, uh, destruction related to fentanyl production and the, and the um, uh, synthesis of these chemicals. Um, and um, uh, also the very fact that these are being traded directly, i.e. Uh, it's not just a money exchange. In some cases, it's a precursor exchange 
um, for these endangered species that are highly valuable. But all of this has organized crime as a common feature. And so this is where I really, I want to pitch it to John. John, what are your thoughts on whether or not fentanyl will continue to be uh, a, a major issue in, in the, the future? Or is the common thread here really organized crime and these third generation gangs that you postulated in the 1990s? Yeah. Um, that's a, the million dollar question. Let me, let me try to hit this. Um, and I'll hit fentanyl directly. The, the short answer is fentanyl is the current flavor of the day. It's not the only threat. The main threat from all varieties of organized crime is the corrosive, um, corruption and erosion of state legitimacy. It's basically, you know, we talk about the U S point of view, and I grew up in Guadalupe, the U S militarization or just desire for militarization to address cartels is counterproductive, not going to work, and doesn't really describe the situation. Um, where I would disagree is third-generation gangs. I don't think are irrelevant. They're just one piece of the of the of the of the framework. And there are criminal armed groups that directly challenge the state militarily, and they need to be addressed. Um, you see those certainly in Brazil with the PCC and the and the uh, Commando Vermelho. Um, most of the gangs don't reach that level. In a fentanyl trade, they don't. In Latin America, the fentanyl trade is dominated by the CJNG, the Jalisco Cartel, and Sinaloa. And the troubling link there is when they link with other enterprises, we're starting to see them link with the the Sinaloa Cartel, for example, with the PCC in Brazil, and they they link into global illicit circuits with the Andragetta. But when we talk about fentanyl, I think the criminal organizations are more important than the product they 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 sell or traffic it because they are polycrime organizations that are engaged in lots of things. But you also think there was an article Insight Crime put out a couple of days ago talking about the Latin American fentanyl market. There are two distinct market characteristics in fentanyl. One is legitimate pharmaceuticals that are diverted and trafficked by criminal enterprises, and the other are the illicit um, fentanyl that's built, you know built through that flow that I showed from China into Mexico, Canada, and the United States. Um, the trade and finished product is bigger than the precursor-driven trade. Most of the, the third-generation gangs, which are transnational gangs, are not major drug trafficking organizations. I think when people talk about MS-13 about being an 18th Street or Barrel 18 as being drug trafficking organizations, they're not trafficking organizations, DTOs, in the classic sense. They're street gangs, either in the second or third generation, depending upon how you look at it. I'd say they're third generation transnational with political components, especially in places like El El Salvador. Um, I think we need to be concerned about other synthetics. You know, fentanyl, carfentanyl, they're they're not the first. Most of your third generation gangs are very limited into the fentanyl trade. They're bigger into methamphetamine, MDMA, and other synthetics. I think those will grow. Um, I think the big ticket in Latin America now is the trade of cocaine and enabling the flow of cocaine through the, the you know, w- through West Africa up into into Europe uh, with the assistance of groups like the Andragetta. Um, other criminal businesses are as important. I think some of their other businesses make more money than drugs. Uh, talk about migrant smuggling, talk about human trafficking in, in this, you know, in, in the, uh, you know, sex crime type of business, talk about resource extraction. I mean, Dan hits the, um, you know, the, the fauna piece. They're also engaged in illicit flora trade. Um, the Amazon is like probably the hotbed of the next 
you know, next catalytic conversion of organized crime groups. Uh, 18th Street, we talked about them being mostly engaged in, in meth. MA, the Mexican mafia, I'd say the same thing. We are starting to see some criminal groups, particularly in Brazil, moving from just street-level micro-trafficking into broader trafficking. And just recently, I just got back from Brazil about a week and a half ago, spent some time lecturing to the military prosecutor there. We start to see both the PCC, the Primero Commando do Capital, and the uh, Commando Romelo, the Red Command, starting to move into the fentanyl trade. They're starting very small with that pharma piece, with the you know, diverted legitimate pharma, but the earlier indications of, in a couple of the uh, favelas, uh, for example, Complexo do, do Mare in, in Rio de Janeiro, we see uh, the, the third, uh, the Tricero uh, Commando Puro, or the third, pure, pure third command, actually just arrests, a series of arrests within the last two weeks, and not just the gangs, but the militias. And I think, interestingly, in Brazil, and this is a change I've seen over the years, the Brazilian law enforcement and judicial community is starting to see the militias, which originally started as police um, vigilantes, starting to see them just as another variety of organized crime. That's a sea change in how they've looked at things there. Uh, up in the northern part of uh, Brazil, the uh, family do Norte is also starting to be seen in the fentanyl trade, mostly you know micro-trafficking, but starting to move larger. And there's a group down in Santa Ca Catarina, south of, uh, of Rio and south of Sao Paulo, a group called the Primero uh, Grupo Catarinense, and they're a rival of the PCC, but they're engaged in, in the fentanyl trade. So it's mostly pharma fentanyl. There's not a significant local market in Brazil, but that's starting to grow. Um, these groups I talked about in Brazil, they are transnational criminal enterprises. They operate in Paraguay. They operate um, in Venezuela. They, Chile is an area where we start to see some of the third-generation gang typology strengthening. There's a group called the Tren de Aragua. It's a, what they call in Venezuela a megabanda. Um, they operate from Venezuela all the way down to the southern cone, um, both sides, Argentina, but especially in, in Chile. Right now, they're mostly doing street-level drug sales in Ecuador and uh, Venezuela, but they're starting to link, and this is another one, I mentioned China being a wild card, starting to link with other Chinese gangs, uh, mostly from uh, from Fujian, so the Fujianese uh, gangsters, if you'd call them. You know, so the Chinese organized crime has specialists that specialize in specialty entities. They have the longstanding triads, which, I mean, when we talk about Mexico and Chinese organized crime, I think of Ensenada and Chinese gangsters being there in the 19th century. You know, they're not all dominant in the trade now, but those links are not necessarily new. Uh, Chinese, China is moving its organized crime and other business interests heavy duty into Latin America. And so that, I'd say that's really a wild card. Uh, there's one group from Fujian called the Bang Clan. You know, so what we see is this. And this is where I think Guadalupe and I come off of the same point. These are complex, adaptive networks with many components. And we simplify them in the United States and elsewhere by calling them just cartels. Well, they call themselves cartels. That's fine. But they're really networks. And the network is a combination because we think we're going to put them all in prison and stop the gangs like they're working on in you know El Salvador. Well, you know what? Prisons is where most radicalization occurs. The Camorra, the local mafia from, from Naples, where my family, part of my family comes from, found was founded in prison. The Barrio Azteca uh, in you know the Texas part of the world was founded in prison. MA, which controls all the street gangs 
in Southern California to one degree or another starts in prison. Uh, the PCC and the Commando Vermelo in Brazil start in prison and project force. Um, so it's, it's highly complicated. We oversimplify these. Um, I often think of the third generation gang as the jumping off point from gang to a, to a more sophisticated mafia. And I think Guadalupe and I agree with that. The question is, what does that look like? And we can't read the future, but we can see that this complexity is going to drive, you know, our understanding of organized crime, national security, and hybrid threats well into the future. And I think I covered most of my talking points. Oh, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Are, are you, uh, no. you have more to go or were you about no, to no. stop? No, okay. I'm. I think, I don't know how much time we have left, but... Um, well, I think we've got um, uh, about five minutes uh, for discussion amongst ourselves before we want to open it up to the to anybody who's got questions out in the audience. Well, um, then let me bounce this to Guadalupe, because we agree in large measure, and I think that any there's really no disagreement on policy, but what's the, what's the nuance? What are the drivers from your perspective that we need to look at that causes the further evolution. Because in my mind, the groups that traveled from first through second through third generation always were influenced by their connection and alliances with other enterprises. And we often look at Matthews as if they're unitary. When we talk about the five families in New York, what are five families are composed of dozens, you know, of smaller cells, gangs, crews, cliques, whatever you want to call them. They call them different things in different places, but they're composite, they're they're networked organizations, and they often rely on on corrupt state officials to enable their activities. So what do you think? And I know you're working on a new book on this, but what do you think is our prime driver we need to look at? We need to we need to stop focusing about drugs only because that kind of like obscures our understanding of the local dynamics of these groups. And this is why, for example, a number of journalists have asked me why if Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador has changed his approach to uh, fighting organized crime, but he continues militarizing, you know, we have to understand also that this is a cycle that is a nonstop cycle of militarization. I think that with regards to this, we don't involve necessarily how state forces operate here with with this, it's not ending um, fight between or or plight between state forces and what you call gangs. And there are different phenomena that we can that we don't separate very well. Not everything that we're talking about is transnational in nature, and this Agreed. is important. I mean, for example, the Barrio 18 and the Mara Salvatrucha, the MS-13 in the Northern Triangle, they extort people in the Northern Triangle. And there is a transnational component, but we have to, I mean, separate it from the local and the national phenomenon that's basically local. And that's something that that the model does not explain or the third uh, generation gang does not explain because the, the militarization per se has- Guadalupe, I have to disagree. It doesn't, it does, it does, but it's not in one writing, it's in multiple writings over 30 years. Um, That's right. The, lo That's the local component is actually present in the first and second generation gangs, but they don't go away in the third. But in, the, in, is, the, in the third generation, you kind of like do not incorporate the, the state component here. And for example, it's just much more complex. 
And the complexity right. has not been captured by, by this third generation gang model because what we're seeing and we're observing in Mexico is kind of like the involvement and the multiplication of the military model to deal with this as a response to the militarization. I mean, there's a militarization of the model. Then it has a military response and then the complex adaptive systems and then the military response. It's a non-ending problem that we have oh. not explained with the third, I mean, with third generation gang. It's one oh. and then the other oh. one. And it's kind of like everybody's militarizing itself in a non-ending cycle of violence and, and confrontation. I agree, but the, the militarization is separate than the evolution of the criminal enterprise. It's the state response. It's, um, it's, and militarization, why is militarization happening? It's happening because of endemic corruption and the state inability to, to effectively do police reform over years. Uh, John, but the involvement of the military, and this is something important, there is an allegation that, uh, that, that uh, I mean, the Secretary of Defense of Mexico, General uh, uh, Cienfuegos Cepeda, mm -hmm. and also um, General Garcia Luna, were part mm -hmm. of this conspiracy to traffic drugs or allowing the gangs or right. the groups that traffic drugs. So, so this model does not capture the involvement of state forces. And we're talking about state that becomes a criminal state. So this complex adaptive system leave off of the state. And this is paramilitarization model. It's not explained by this because they don't act by themselves. It's well, I agree, but I, I think you need to read more of what I've written because I have directly addressed that in many, many of the third generation gang works. Yeah, so, but now it may this not is be discussed. part of this. This, this, fits, this fits the model and this is central. And in your model, that is kind of like a, you know, a consequence of, of, the, of, of this trans, transnational well, and the corruption per se. But this is part of the criminal model. And this well, is one of our complex adaptive systems. Yeah, I agree. And I would remind you to look at the work of David Ronfeldt and John Arkea in the 1990s that actually looked at those components. I'd look at the work of Manuel Castells that looks at those components, and I'd say that third-generation gang theory is only one of an interlocking set of theories. And if you look at the discussion on criminal insurgencies, I think that fills in the piece. But I think you're absolutely right. Corruption is a driver. Um, impunity is a driver. And uh, I think I, I, I can, I'll send you something where I specifically pull that out that you may not have read. And it probably reminds me I need to I need I, to kill it again. I, I I think I think I think it's a four generation um I mean model now. Why? Because we're talking about a military model that is based on propaganda, it's based on special operations that is kind of like oh. also utilizing the media and, and elements that have not been incorporated into the third generation gang, in my but, um, no, I no, I hear you, but I'm saying that that's it it is there but it's more broadly expressed in the criminal insurgency literature and in a hybrid threat literature. But, you know, I, I take your point. And I think the points you're talking about are very important. I think that they are, they are more, I think they're more present in the model third generation gang than, than you may have, have seen, but I think you're right on emphasizing those pieces. There's a, there's something more complex. The complexity has to do with models of, I mean, I don't want to use this, this word, but, 
you know, it's about the, what the, when you talk about the complex adaptive systems and you talk about the what what's its name when when you talk about like how the 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 different uh, insects work like in a um, oh my god I I forgot this, this word that's Emergy. Which emergy? No, no. Um, I mean, when, when we talk about how the bees um, act, and and that that has been used to to talk about the the migrant caravans because of the militarization of the strategies to deal with migration. Uh-huh. Um, let me. I've never, let used, me, that. Eh? I've uh, never used that. Um, I, I think what you're talking about is more of a full channel network, which I think network theory, when blended with criminal insurgency theory and third generation gang theory, hits it. But I think you're right that demilitarization um, is a, a consequence of cr- criminal insurgency more than of gang evolution, but the two complement each other. Um, I, 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 I ask I you both... a question. Uh-huh. Would you would you both agree that there's some sort of symbiotic relationship between the military and these gangs? Well, there's a symbiotic relationship between organized crime and the state. There always has been. The question is, how does it express itself? But I think that the militarization of, uh, I mean, you know, uh, operations to deal with drug trafficking, and that started with Los Zetas, because it was not Los Zetas and the response of the state. It was the response of the state because, uh, I mean, with Operation I mean, sealing, Operación Sellamiento, and you sent the the judicial, I mean, the the Policía Judicial Federal to the board and then Osiel Cárdenas meet meets, uh, uh, Arturo Guzmán de Sena and its guys that were trained in special operations and counterinsurgency operations in the South. They they were already responding to a paramilitary police model. So, I mean, that is what I am saying, that, that, that this is taking us to a new thing that, that has to do with, with, with systems that are not explained by the third generation gun model, in my, my perspective. No, and they're, they're, no they're, they're not. They're more in the criminal insurgency model than the third generation gang. But militarization, first of all, all police organizations have a root in military service. Believe me, I was a yeah. cop the years how i think the problem in mexico is and and other places in latin america particularly those that embrace the manodura approaches they over militarize they bring in the military because they're less corrupt or procedures less less corrupt but they're not necessarily suited for policing i think the the failure there is is a failure of police reform because police reform has been a perennial perennial problem in mexico and in other parts of Latin America. But what happens is that the, the militarization or paramilitarization of, of the model, the criminal model plus the responses or the, the, the continuation, this creates what it's called swarming. And then when we see that, we see that all these groups act in a certain way that reproduces the model as an insect or as the systems that are very, very complex and cannot just be explained by focusing on corruption or focusing on transnational or focusing on the local or fo- I mean, I, I, I was I was talking about all these elements, but right. combining all these elements together, we this complexity goes to an extent where whatever you do is not going to stop the homicide rate. And this is exactly what is happening in Mexico. And this is what, what people are, are asking me, why the homicide rate continues growing, well, a little bit decline, but that's, that doesn't count. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a, a trend that goes up. Why yeah. does the 
happen. Well, I would argue it's because the state, because well, swarming is, is 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 either an operational approach or a tactic. Um, swarming occurs in many ways, and Rafael Nokia did a lot of work on swarming in addition to their work on on networks. I think you're right, but by your definition, you'd be saying that networks are a wicked problem that are insoluble and you can't solve violence. I don't think that's true. I think what we're seeing is the result of state transition where organized crime is changing the nature of the state. And that's Charles Tilley's work um, seen through my through the lens of, of, my, of my research and, and, and others. But this is the equilibrium between organized crime and the state has perhaps broken in places like Mexico and El Salvador and Brazil, but that doesn't mean it's not going to reset, and that doesn't mean it can't reset. But I think you're right. If you use militarization as the only means of resetting it and take out the other social goods that need to be there, you're not going to be able to get there because there are other components of you know development that need to be included. Um, I think, for example, to look at, and I'll close it real quick, looking at Brazil as opposed to Mexico, um, I just yesterday um, reviewed the, the, the movie uh, Tropa de Elite or Elite Squad, looking at a militarized response with the Bope to the, to the CV in Rio de Janeiro. And I would argue that the UPP, the Unitized uh, uh, Pacification, uh, were a better model. You know, So I think there's some need to blend criminal justice, policing, and social services and economic development to be able to cope with the, with the change. And that tells me where the next theory needs to come up. But I think, you know, I, I'm going to take this moment to chime in here because we have exactly eight minutes left in our panel. And so I want to check with Ana uh, Castro, our moderator here, to see if we have any questions from our audience on this. And if there aren't any, I've got some for everybody and, and a couple of themes I'd like everybody to, to give a quick comment on. Anna, do we have any questions from the audience? No, Nathan, no, we don't have any questions and you have 15 minutes. Oh, we have, well, okay, okay, we've got a full 15 minutes. Okay, I chimed in a little bit early. Okay, well then, um, now that I've got- And I have floor, a question as well. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, I I just want to I want to ra raise uh, three issues that I that I see as see as coming up in 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 these issues. Um, one, what to do about international re regulation related to fentanyl? Um, we've had great success in setting up international conventions like the Montreal Protocols on regulating CFCs. Could we do something related to precursors for fentanyl, or is this a much more challenging problem because of dual use and le perfectly legitimate uses? Also, state capacity. State capacity seems to be an issue that we keep coming back to. That seems to be a common theme here. And then also, is AMLO right? Is there something wrong in the United States of America in terms of our consumption of drugs? We seem to have an appetite for drugs that, that seems to be very, very high. Um, and we're not doing very much on demand reduction, despite the fact that RAND studies have told us for decades that it's seven times more effective than interdiction and militarized strategies. So I want to pose these questions back to the panel. Does anybody want to chime in on either international regulation, state capacity, or demand reduction or harm reduction? I'd say let Dan go first, and then okay. I got some thoughts on integrating intelligence and harm reduction into operational <laughs> points that I think have been missed. But Fair enough. I'll, I'll, you know what, I'll take the, the state one because I wanted to to make the point that I, I do believe that with all of these, uh, well, at least with the extractivist nature of these gangs that we are seeing, we are seeing an opportunity for the Mexican state to regain legitimacy. This is a problem that can be resolved 
through proper investigative work, it is a good way to regain the trust of citizens. You're talking about not only polluting their communities, but also an extortion rate that has caused the inflation of food and beverages in Mexico by several percentages. I think the latest estimates were between 20 to 40 percent. So is is this the time to maybe reverse from the over-militarization and start really trying to invest in more investigative work because of this extractivist nature? Well, I I would certainly hope so. And one of the key issues is how to pay for better local, state, and federal law enforcement to be able to have the capacities to really invest in investigative approaches. Um, I I, I think that that's got to be one of the key issues. And, um, you know, John had just mentioned that he was interested in talking about intelligence uh, as it applies to this. So maybe this is a good place for him to chime in on the role of intelligence. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I mean, this is like, we don't have enough time. We could go for months on this because these are, I think these are complex intersecting problems and there are multiple facets and they get in the political discourse simplified down into, into one thing, like, like police reform. In Mexico, it's become, do we have the Guardia Nacional and how do we do that? And there's always discussion of improving the preventive police, but nobody ever talks about the investigative or judicial police in recent memory. Um, so, I mean, we need to look at a holistic police reform in the whole place. I think when you look at intelligence, and intelligence is widely misunderstood, and it's widely misunderstood in the policing community. It's not looked at in a full breadth as the way it's looked at in the national intelligence structures. But I think there are gaps in surveillance. I'll give you an example. One of the things that occurs in the fentanyl crisis in the U.S. is, one, the, the deaths have gone up immensely, and you see fentanyl mixed with other with other uh, opioids and other substances. But one of them, you see, for example, they call it xyloz- it's xylazine, they call it tronc. It's not a controlled substance, and it gets in there. It's not made for human consumption. It has really deleterious uh, effects on the human body. Um, we just, this year, started noticing that there was tronc in the fentanyl a drug supply, a local drug supply. Yet when you look back, you realize that with deeper surveillance, if we link the surveillance between the criminal enforcement and public health epidemiological surveillance, we might have noticed this trend in drugs sooner. So that's an example. We need to have like holistic intelligence fusion to understand because intelligence isn't just using secret information. It's processing a whole range of information to understand situation to support a range of decision makers. And I think that's often often missed. We, we have our first uh, audience question. I think I think it's a very interesting one. Are countries such as China and India who supply much of the precursor material for fentanyl doing so purely for profit or are there other reasons? Is it done with the full knowledge of their respective governments? Uh, Guadalupe, would you like to tackle that one? Uh, can you can you repeat again? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So, are countries such as China and India who supply much of the precursor material for fentanyl doing so purely for profit, or are there other reasons for it? Is it done with the full knowledge of their respective governments? Well, I, I this is this is a difficult question to answer because we don't have the evidence to, uh, I mean, to argue that they are doing for geopolitical reasons. There has been a lot of um, talks about China. Uh, trying to do the same thing that was, uh, I mean, you know, the opioid, um, the, opi- the, the, the opioid wars. And I am not sure. I mean, in my, in my perspective, everything has to do with demand and supply and everything has to do with business. I mean, if we follow the money, if we understand 
the economic logics of all these, we're going to know. And geopolitics are explained in the same terms. When you talk about power and control of territories, uh, we have to think about where uh, important resources are, 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 are based or where are the important markets and how, um, you know, who's going to win from, from involving in wars and what's the industry that's going to win and things like that. So, you know, alleging things that go beyond the pure uh, business-like model or, the, the I mean, the markets is going too far because we don't have evidence to prove that or something like more ideological, something like more mystic. I I, I don't see that happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I 100% I agree with you. I, what I would say is, are the Chinese, is the Chinese government going to be eager to jump onto an international framework to deal with fentanyl if we are, if the United States is tar- engaging in sanctions against their microchip industry or, or various other issues? That there are other issues at play that will limit whether or not they want to cooperate on international frameworks. But again, that's separate and distinct from, uh, oh, there's some intentionality behind uh, ver- versus the more likely explanation, which I think is what you're saying is the more likely explanation is this is just run-of-the-mill corruption that's getting by. Yeah. Well, Nate, what are the issues on this? And it's, In hybrid warfare discussions, there are discussions of nation-states using strategic crime as means, and that's not unheard of, um, and the Chinese have played in those arenas. Are they using fentanyl as a direct wedge to pay us back for the op- opium wars? That be- would be very hard to, to prove, but you have to remember, China's. we look at it as China's as one giant unitary state with all actors. We forget that there are principal agent phenomena occurring in here. And I, I mentioned like Fujian organized crime. Well, you know what? China's got multiple organized crime organizations. Many of them predate the People's Republic of China. Um, there mm. are fissures within the People's Republic of China. Um, for years, the, the, uh, the PLA was run like a bunch of warlords conducting a whole bunch of private business for their own, you know, beneficial, you know, own benefit. Um, Xi has purged lots of people for corruption, allegedly. Some of it's probably, you know, you could argue is related to political power, but demonstrating that's hard. But getting an international agreement on fentanyl, yeah, we could perhaps do that. But we have international agreements on other, you know, drug crimes. We haven't canceled out the drug trade in the last hundred years. So, I mean, I think those are tools. You look at them as ways to do it. But what makes this hard is it's not a single thing. When you talk about, you know, you just look at the work that you and I have done on the CJNJ and the Sinaloa um, networks. They're not unitary enterprises. You, you know, they're, they're all complex and amalg- amalgamations of multiple different types of actors that come together. So when you add states, states are just another part of that equation. But there is discussion specifically, there was a book that was written by a couple of Chinese colonels about 25 years ago, it seems now, 20, 23, 25 years ago, called Unrestricted Warfare, where the Chinese were thinking conceptually that part of their doctrine might include things like strategic crime. Uh, does that mean they're doing it? It means something that's something best discussed by intelligence organizations like the Five Eyes. Um, and not in a public forum. But I mean, I think there's certainly things to think about. Okay, we've got about five minutes left. So I think this is our our time to start thinking about uh, concluding thoughts here. Uh, And so the the primary concluding thought is, where do we go from here? Uh, And and that's the question I want to I want to pose. What can we do about third generation gangs? 
about uh, about this fentanyl issue, about this network phenomenon of organized crime going forward. Um, so I'd like to start with uh, Guadalupe. Why don't you go ahead? Well, I mean, yeah. How how can we think about this? Which is which is which is which is very very important. I I, I believe that uh, the narratives matter, and I think that we are now focusing. Uh, our conversation on fentanyl, drugs, geopolitics, the, the role of China and India, and we are driven by, by the narrative, uh, electoral narrative in the United States. And we need to separate um, the analysis uh, in order to formulate a better question, right? What the fentanyl crisis is about and what is driving the fentanyl crisis? Who is producing the synthetic drugs and where are the synthetic drugs really coming from? Are they all coming from Mexico, produced in Mexico from precursors in China? Or is that uh, half of the story or a third mm -hmm. of the story? Uh, because when there is demand, there's going to be supply only. And we need to understand also what caused this fentanyl crisis in the first place. And what is the role of the pharmaceutical companies and what yes. the pharmaceutical companies have caused in this crisis too. And how harm reduction, we didn't, de we didn't deal with the harm reduction strategies that are touted as the main thing to deal with the fentanyl crisis or the more humane or or addressing that you know these these by 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 I, I mean focusing on on human rights i am not sure that this is true but we don't have time to address this complex issue but i think we have to go part by part and we have to formulate questions that are in a very different way right not connecting the guns and the fentanyl because we there are more players and there is something that has that can be explained in the United States and not go to not needs to go to China. Or Mexico. Yes. Yes. OK, so I'm going to pivot that same question. Where do we go from here to John? Uh, we've got uh, about one or two minutes and leave some time for Dan here. Yeah. No, what I'd say is we do need to separate the different parts of the equation. I think the flows I showed, which come from congressional testimony I gave them, with Dr. Bunker a couple of months ago, derived on DEA of data, show that it's not primarily just the China to Mexico to U.S. route, that there are other routes they need to be accounted for. Our local demand is certainly part of it. That's why I think we need to add harm reduction to the, to the efforts. Um, and absolutely, there are global geopolitical pieces. There always are. Because it's, you know, when it comes down to whether you're talking about organized crime or which variety, mafias, gangs, cartels, triads, there's a component of power related to that. Is it over an electoral, po electoral power? No, but it is power and it certainly plays in the territorial gangs in, in, in Brazil. And I think we do need to look at Mexico differently than we do Brazil, differently than we do Central America, the Northern Triangle of Central America, even within the nations there, there are different permutations. Within the United States, there are different permutations. But these are, at core, transnational, global, illicit flows that work in a global, illicit political economy, what you know, Nils Gilman once called deviant globalization. That's part of the state change that comes. So you, you have to break the components apart to look at individual solutions for different pieces, but you have to pull them back together to look at the macro level as well. Um, and that's very hard, and that requires national-level effort with input um, from not only intelligence professionals, but police professionals, development specialists, and, and on and on. So very complicated problems. 
Um, I think it's clear, however, that the narratives, and Guadalupe, you're right, narratives are, are key to how we understand the phenomena. Disinformation is key to how we understand it. And there's lots of disinformation being used to further all different types of agendas. And, uh, you know, that's going to be hard because we don't have a unitary single voice. That's why discussions like this are vitally important. Yeah. And I think this is a great way to pivot to Dan here because Dan has done some amazing work on information warfare conducted by the CJNG. So where do we go from here, Dan? You know, I, I think it's it's really going to come down to this fight over citizens. I think the more that we see these linkages disseminate, the more that we understand that these are civilians that are being involved, whether it's an illicit phishing or is illicit logging or uh, just having to pay for having a business that makes money in Mexico, we need to understand that these linkages that they're having with organized crime are starting to outnumber the linkages that we have with a state that can be there for them and give them the adequate supplies and resources that they need. So unless the state understand that it's in a fight for its life against these cartels to regain this commun these community links and start to really work with communities in Mexico to regain trust, we will not be able to succeed. Yeah, you know, that is a fantastic point. Uh, during, during my field work in Mexico, that was one of the key things that I found was that it wasn't just that organized crime was coming in and extorting. In some cases, they were providing protection, but not from their violence or street violence, but protection from law enforcement itself. Uh, protection from the bribes that would be charged by law enforcement itself. The extraction of the state apparatus itself. And that was one of the key grievances, uh, if we look at it in a criminal insurgent perspective, uh, that, that organized crime was stepping in and remedying it. And that was... Uh, a dangerous thought. Um, so we are out of time here, and I, I think we've covered this topic very well. We, we've uh, hit on demand reduction, state capacity, um, uh, international regulation of precursors, third generation gain, complex adaptive systems. We, we've co covered myriad issues, uh, but our time is coming to a close. And so we've got to wrap up and bid everyone adieu. So goodbye, everyone.